Welcome to the weekly podcast of Science and the City, the public gateway to the New York Academy of Sciences, online at scienceandthecity.org. Today is Friday, August 22nd, 2008. I'm Alana Rangi. A couple of weeks ago, I took my recorder to the Museum of Sex in the middle of Manhattan. I'd heard they'd just opened an exhibit on the sex lives of animals. That's right. Animals have sex lives. And, as I learned, sex lives that could give any human a run for their money. This week, we dive into the diversity and biology of animal sexuality with Museum of Sex curator Sarah Jacobs and evolutionary biologist Joan Roughgarden. Can't resist a visual? Check out our multimedia slideshow online at scienceandthecity.org slash podcast. Please be advised, this podcast on the sexuality of animals contains language and descriptions which may not be suitable for all listeners. My name is Sarah Jacobs, and I am the curator of the Museum of Sex here in New York City. And we are in our exhibition, The Sex Lives of Animals. And basically, this exhibition is talking about that there's tons and tons of non-reproductive sexual behavior within the animal kingdom, and that this kind of sexual behavior serves lots of purposes within the animal community. Cooperation, social bonding, easing of tensions, and a whole host of other reasons that we'll you know, be able to chat through as we take a tour through the exhibition. Okay, cool. The primary content advisor for this exhibition was Joan Roughgarden, who is an evolutionary biologist at Stanford, and she wrote a book called Evolution's Rainbow, which really talked about all the diversity within the natural kingdom and really how maybe we need to elaborate on Darwinian thought. My name is Joan Roughgarden, and I'm a professor of biology at Stanford University. My subject is ecology and evolutionary biology. At least one reason why this diversity of gender sexuality isn't being reported is that it's destabilizing to a lot of the theories we have in evolution, Mm -hmm. theories that go back to Darwin. And Darwin actually wrote out what amounts to a biological theory of gender and sexuality, and it's what's called sexual selection. And most people are aware of this theory because of its use with the peacock's tail. Uh, Everyone's heard, seen a peacock and the peacock's tail. And Darwin's theory for why the peacock has such a large, beautiful tail, is that females choose males for these tails. And so the males come and display their tails, and the females are supposed to want to sleep with the male who has the tail. And Darwin went on to say that males were generally passionate and females were generally coy. They're his words. Going back to Darwin, and we biologists basically take Darwin as correct on just about everything. If Darwin says something, our initial inclination is to say, well, he's right, and to find out how he's right. So on this, too, on the issue of males generally being passionate, females generally being coy, Darwin was assumed to be right. And that's then led to this whole picture of sex and gender in the animal kingdom, which is basically a heterosexist narrative. So we're supposed to be seeing this played out throughout the animal kingdom. But it isn't true. It just plain isn't true. And so I've been pointing this out, that we have to rethink the biology, and especially the evolutionary biology of gender and sexuality, going all the way back to what Darwin wrote. There are many misconceptions regarding the natural world, some of them being that an organism is solely male or female for life, which is not true. Males are bigger than females on average. Not true. My favorite example is the blanket octopus. The female is about six feet long, and the male is only an inch. Females, not males, give birth. No, in some species, it's different. There's sexual reversal. 
Only two genders occur corresponding to the two sexes. Not true. Males and females look different from one another. In many species, they look exactly the same externally. And once you, you know, can tell you know, internally held genitalia, you can start to see differences. The male has the penis and the female lactates. Not true. In the female spotted hyena, the female has a penis-like appendage which she urinates through and gives birth through. Males control females. In many species, it is quite the opposite. Particularly, uh, we focus a lot on the bonobos, um, which is actually a matriarchal society, and the females often you know, create bonds and they dominate males within the group. A bonobo is um, also known as pygmy chimp. They only live in the Congo Basin, and they are thought to be our closest genetic relative. They also have a kind of voracious sexual appetite. They have sex constantly with all members of their group, male-female, male-male, female-female, intergenerational sex, and they really use sex as a tool of bonding. I think it's really the frequency of their sexual encounters, and I think it's also a lot of female-female relationships. The female bonobo has a clitoris that's about two inches long. They can actually penetrate each other, and they can penetrate a male. And I think it's also, in most primates, they have a genital swelling, swelling only during estrus. But with the bonobos, they are almost constantly have a genital swelling. So it's kind of a different kind of even physiological uh, manifestation. One of the chapters in Evolution's Rainbow is specifically about homosexuality in animals. And as I mentioned, there are clearly over 300 and maybe by now 400, 450 or so species in which same-sex sexuality is documented in nature under perfectly natural conditions and as a regular part of the social system, not as some kind of rare, strange anomaly. But I don't personally make a big deal out of homosexuality because I lump it in with a lot of other kinds of behavior which promote physical intimacy. So bats will rub their tongues with one another in a kind of kissing. You see animals quite often preen one another. Birds, for example, will reciprocally preen each other's feathers. Sometimes there's mutual grooming that goes on, and then you often see animals sleeping together in, in sort of big piles. Iguanas on the Galapagos are very well-photographed cases of this, where they're just piled up on one another, sleeping on top of one another. So all of these behaviors promote physical intimacy. And of course, if there are a lot of pleasure neurons in the vicinity of the genitals, which you would expect, then that's a great way to have mutual tactile contact, mutually signaling friendship through pleasure. I think that's the real importance of homosexuality. Because of everyone's interest in whether or not homosexuality is natural and is real and is widespread, we trip over the more basic issue, which is that there's a lot of friendship in nature. And what's problematic for evolutionary biology is not the occurrence of homosexuality itself, because animals always use the organs they have for all sorts of tasks. What's destabilizing is the prevalence of friendship because that undercuts the premise that evolution is all about competition. From penguins, which we're quite familiar with, at the Central Park Zoo, there were two penguins, Roy and Silo, two male chinstrap penguins, that had been pair-bonded for several years and were kind of, um, you know, they'd see these, you know, these other couples building nests and, you know, hatching eggs. And so they basically tried to do the same thing. And so their zookeeper had an abandoned egg gave it to this couple, and they made a nest, and they sat on it, and then the chick was born named Tango, and there's a beautiful children's story written about this particular experience. It's called Entango Makes Three. 
it doesn't talk about sex. It just is kind of maybe talking about alternative family structures. And it's one of the most challenged books in this country because of the, the content dealing with same-sex relationships. I live in downtown San Francisco, and uh, this, along with New York City, is one of the uh, major locations for gay and lesbian culture. And the Gay Pride Parade here in San Francisco is quite an amazing experience. It brings 100,000 people or so. And in 1997, I marched for the first time in a gay pride parade. And I was stunned by how large it was. And there were special trains being run from the suburbs to bring people into the city. Meanwhile, I knew that as a biologist, it was widely believed and is still widely taught that gay or in any case same-sex behavior is rare in the animal kingdom and when it does occur is somehow pathological. And I also knew that among humans about 10% of the population, depending on how you define it, is gay or lesbian or trans in some way. And that's a big number. So then the reality of gay and lesbian and transgender presentations in humans became clear. And that, that's a big problem. Numbers that big are a big problem because they're not consistent with uh, explanations of pathology. And they're certainly not consistent with descriptions of homosexuality in nature as rare because why would humans be so different from any other species? We were able to work with a wonderful fine artist named Rooney Olsen, a Norwegian Brooklyn-based artist. He created five life-size sculptures for this exhibition, two of the sculptures being uh, bonobos. One is a male bonobo, and all of the sculptures are based on scientific photographs of animals. So you're greeted at the exhibition of a, a sculpture of a male bonobo with an erection with sugar cane in his hands. And this is basically, the photo was titled, Male Bonobo Soliciting Sex with Sugar Cane. And within many species, studies have shown, especially with primates, that there is this exchange of either favors or, or food for sex. What this artist has tried to do, and he's been working with sculptures with animal sexuality for some time, is he t- likes to use social material. So it's made out of layers and layers of tape which have drawing um, on top of it. So it's really like antique biological drawings brought into the 3D. We have another sculpture of two pandas that are mating, a heterosexual couple. And basically what's kind of going on with pandas is that they, you know, they're a highly endangered species and they are you know, within captivity, not necessarily reproducing uh, at, this, at the rate that scientists would like them to do. So in kind of an act of desperation or, or innovation, you could say, they were having male pandas watch videos of other pandas mating, which kind of media dubbed as panda porn. And they were, you know, really trying to inspire them to teach them. It's almost kind of a form of sex education. This is, you know, within captivity, they may not see other pandas having sex and to kind of see what they're supposed to be doing, how the sexual act is supposed to occur. This is often the problem in zoos. They're gorillas, for example, who just won't particularly mate. Of course, on its face, that goes against the Darwinian claim that all males are passionate. This is also true in horse breeding. It's often been reported that the male who wins some big horse race is not interested in sex and therefore isn't a stud. And in sheep, there's been a lot of research even on the sheep who are themselves gay rather than straight. And so so farmers look into how to detect whether or not a stud, a gay stud, is called a a dud stud in farmer jargon. They try to find these to make sure that uh, they don't wind up buying a stud who who doesn't perform. And it points to the commonness of this phenomenon. 
males are definitely not always passionate. And it's a myth that males want sex all the time. And I remember in Evolution's Rainbow talking about a bird species in the Pyrenees which, in which the females were doing all the initiation and they were doing it all the time and you know, just putting themselves in front of the males to try to get the males to mate. And so I think that we need to rethink the dynamic of courtship. If the males aren't mating in pandas, it sounds to me, this is just off the top of my head, as though the setting for the courtship isn't effective. The male and the female just don't discern that it's in their interest at young. As you know, the reproduction rate in Europe is dropping. One might wonder, you know, why are men and women not having children in Europe? And, of course, you could go into all sorts of demographic explanations and so on, but that could happen easily in the setting that pandas are in and certainly in zoos. Animals engage in all sexual acts possible. They engage in oral sex, anal sex, group sex, masturbation, same-sex relationships. So when we see that these are natural scientific facts that are in the scientific literature, it really makes us start to question what is natural, what is not natural, why do we make you know, some of these things larger issues in our own society. Sex is, to biologists, is simply the combining of genes when producing offspring. So it, sex in and of itself doesn't even require males and females. All it requires is that two parents combine genes to make their offspring. And it turns out that there are a lot of species in which you can't discern a male and a female. Now, the definition of male and female comes up in connection with the sizes of those little cells that have to combine to produce the embryo. And those little cells are called gametes. And the smaller one is the sperm, and the larger one is called the egg. Biologists define male function as simply making the smaller of the two gamete sizes, and female function is making the bigger of the two sizes. And this binary with respect to gamete size is pretty universal throughout both plants and animals. So there's some species where the gametes are all the same size, so they don't have male and female defined at all. So sex is merely the recombining of genes when producing offspring. But then if the recombining takes place through gametes of different sizes, then you also have male and female defined. And if you have male and female defined in the sense of having gametes of two different sizes, the further issue is whether or not the whole body, an individual as, as an entire body, is itself just male or female. And it turns out that about half of the species in nature have body types in which there's both male and female combined. In the ocean, if you see all sorts of things, when you walk along the shore, snails and darfish, barnacles, worms, all of these things are male and female at the same time. And if you go snorkeling on a coral reef, about a third of the species of fish that you see there are members of species that are male and female at the same time. Even the notion of having body types, which are solely male and solely female, is a derived condition. In addition to all the information about same-sex sexuality, it was clear during the surveying that there are a great many species in which there was actually a sex change taking place. So if we get back to the body types, at least half of the plants and animals have body types which are both male and female at some time throughout the life. And then sort of a subtle distinction is whether they're male and female at the same time or whether they're male and female at different times.
And if they're male and female at the same time, they're called a simultaneous hermaphrodite. And if they're male and female at different times during their life, they're called sequential hermaphrodite. If you go snorkeling on a coral reef, you find all three possibilities. You find fish like the clownfish that lives in sea anemones. And in those, the sequence is they start out as male and then turn into female later in life. Then there's something called the blue-headed wrasse, which goes the other way, starts out as female, turns into male. And then there are other fish called hamlets, which are male and female simultaneously. Hermaphrodites don't self-fertilize. These are always cross-fertilizing. So when hamlets mate, one of them releases sperm and the other releases eggs. And then 30 seconds later, they turn over and then reverse roll. And the first one releases eggs and the other one releases sperm. So if they're sequential hermaphrodites, then they would actually be said to change sex because they have to go from male to female, which simply means, or female to male, which simply means changing the size of gamete that's produced. Insofar as they change behavior as well when they change sex, then you might also say that they change gender. You just stop being surprised at the way they use the structures and traits they have. You've seen, you know, gorgeous pictures, I'm sure, of camouflaged chameleons and For example, a chameleon whose tongue can dart out three times its body length and catch a little bug. You know, and you might say, how does a tongue do that, you know? And then you see squirrels that can fly, and you see lizards that can fly in Borneo. You see fish that can live on the sides of trees in the mangrove swamps. And then you see walking sticks, even in our backyards here in North America, that look identical to a piece of wood poison dart frogs in the Amazon, you know, who make poisons. And it just goes on and on and on. And so, therefore, if for some reason two animals want to exchange tactile pleasure, tactile communication with one another, then of course they'd press the the genitals into service. What I find that we learn from looking at the animal kingdom in this way is our bonds of commonness with the rest of nature. I don't see us looking at animals and sort of deriving messages for for humans as much as feeling more at one with the rest of nature. Nature really were just about competition and about passionate males and coy females. It would mean that an awful lot of people would find nature a strange place. Science and the story of nature we're being told from science is a heterosexist narrative. And so it makes people who don't identify with a heterosexist narrative, feel like strangers on their own planet. And and then when we see that, well, you know, here's the rest of nature behaving in ways and doing the sorts of things that we never even knew they did, it opens up the door for a broader part of our population to become one with nature. You know, sexuality is, you know, a difficult subject sometimes. Um, And it's sometimes hard to distance ourselves from our own biases and morality Mm -hmm. and to really present. A lot of this information, particularly about same-sex relationships, has been gathered for a long time, Mm -hmm. but it's just seen as an anomaly or statistically insignificant or something like that. And now that, you know, maybe not have your funding taken away if you talk about some of these things are coming more to light. Thanks for listening. Do you love Science in the City podcasts? Support them by becoming a member of the New York Academy of Sciences. Visit scienceandthecity.org and click Join NIAS. Did you know that you can subscribe to Science in the City podcasts on iTunes and get our news story every week downloaded automatically to your iTunes library? 
Search Science and the City in your iTunes search bar. Have questions or comments about our show? We'd love your feedback. Send us an email at scienceandthecity at nyas.org or leave a voicemail at 212-298-8654. Also, check out Science in the City on Facebook. See you next week.